So, hey there. This is the second week of my new series on the Psalms, and I will be going back and forth every four episodes, doing four Psalms and then four teachings on the Gospel of Matthew. I'm doing this because they will help us to read each other, and especially when we get to the Beatitudes. Matthew presents Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, as the greater Moses, the giver of the wisdom of Yahweh, and Israel's definitive teacher, whereas Moses was a lesser mediator who sometimes spoke his own words and did his own rock whacking, which got him into trouble. I will post a master book list sometime soon if you want to know what resources I'm using for this series. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years. No, I don't have six. I have six books. I have years worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, which I called Context for Kids. I also have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. As we did last week, the psalm itself will, I will read it initially from Robert Alter's excellent The Book of Psalms, a translation with commentary. After that, I will pull all scripture from the Christian Standard Bible. Alter is famous for his translations, which capture more of the flow and the brevity um, of the Hebrew. And by brevity, I mean, it's, Hebrew is much more compact than English. Hebrew can say in like one word what you know, we take a sentence to say sometimes, all right, not that bad. Sometimes it'll make a big difference as in this Psalm, but with Psalm 1, we notice that it really didn't change much at all. And we can agree or disagree with this translation and that's okay too. I'm actually kind of on the fence about this one and you'll probably notice why right away. But his decisions aren't entirely out of left field because each translator makes interpretational choices. Nothing is a true translation. It's impossible. When we have to communicate meaning instead of just words, the text has to be interpreted. All right, so let's read this Psalm 2. Why are the nations aroused and the peoples murmur vain things? Kings of the earth take their stand. And princes conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear off their fetters. Let us fling away their bonds. He who dwells in the heavens will laugh. The master derides them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, in his burning anger dismay them. And I, I appointed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Let me tell as is due of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. I myself today did beget you. Ask of me and I shall give nations as your estate and your holdings 
the ends of the earth. You will smash them with a rod of iron, like a potter's jar you will dash them. And now, O you kings, pay mind. Be chastened, you rulers of the earth. Worship the Lord in fear and exult in trembling. With purity be armed, lest he rage and you be lost on the way. For his wrath in a moment flares up. Happy all who shelter in him. And we've mostly been taught to read this with a messianic eye, right? This psalm certainly was never fulfilled through David or any of his descendants. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a double meaning here that was in the mind of the original author. This might have been composed partially in response to some real-life crisis or just as a general ranting against foreign oppressors. I don't believe that there are any purely predictive psalms, but that each one made sense when it was written in some way or another that might be lost to us now. Certainly the Bible gives us a very narrow historical view. For the space of thousands of years, we are told relatively little. And what we are told is related to us so that we can see God's character. The Bible is not a human history-centered document, but a God-centered document. Sometimes we tend to forget it because we're just naturally human-centered in our own interests. But this psalm is God's story and not the story of any person. God is the main character despite there being three speakers um, and voices here working together. Do you remember when we studied Isaiah 40 and how many voices there were and how difficult that was to unravel? Well, this one's much easier. According to Acts 4.26, the author slash narrator is David, inspired by the Holy Spirit in verses um, 1 through 3 and 10 through 12. And then we have Yahweh's reaction in verses 4 through 6 and the anointed son who is king in verses 7 through 9. Likely there's a lot more going on here than we will ever know. Now for reasons I don't have time to fully explore now, there is a great deal of evidence that Psalms 1 and 2 were originally a matched set, maybe even one psalm instead of two. If you remember from last time, Psalm 1 is a wisdom saying, much as we would find in Proverbs or in the Beatitudes. It lays the foundation that the Psalms are to be experienced by the wise in order to grow in wisdom for the purpose of God's people flourishing and the rest of the world also flourishing as a result, which will be a really important thing to remember when we start our Matthew studies. But there is another side to the Psalms, and that is the importance of kingship of God over his people. Even when speaking of David, David cannot be separated from God's kingship because David only reigns through the allowance of Yahweh. This is why psalms like this one are called royal psalms. Together, the wisdom focus and the kingship focus point us to the underlying foundation of covenant relations. Covenant life with Yahweh must be lived out as an expression of both wisdom in knowing and learning and living according to his teachings or instructions, which is the proper translation of the Hebrew word Torah, and recognizing him as fundamentally the one true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These two Psalms 
set the stage for the rest of the collection. So we're able to read every single one of them with these firmly in our minds. To read them apart from the lessons they teach can cause us to use them in some really wrong ways, along with the rest of scripture for that matter. Scripture and the Psalms in particular, um, it doesn't give us the answer to every problem and question, but it does teach us the wisdom we need in order to navigate life's challenges and questions. So that was a really long introduction. Let's talk about the actual Psalm using the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. And I want you to notice all the words here. Um, Yahweh uses my a lot. But we're also going to see a lot of talking. This is a talk, 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 and very little action kind of psalm. And so I want you to notice that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. We have our first speaker here asking an important question. The tone is like incredulous, meaning that they can't even believe these people are so foolish. And this of course ties in with the wisdom theme. Wise nations do not rebel against the rulership or authority of Yahweh and or his chosen leader. Note that this cannot be applied to church leaders, okay? Not the same thing. Man, I have seen this sort of thing misused. <laughs> As far as the language goes, we have the Goyim and the Umim. The Goyim being the outside pagan nations and the Umim generally translated as peoples, which can mean God's people or the nations outside Israel. And the clear context here is that these are foreign nations. What are they doing? Do you remember in Psalm 1 where the wise man mutters? It's translated as meditates, but um, the word is verbal, all right? The teachings, anyway, he, uh, he uh, murmurs the teachings of Yahweh all day long. Here in Psalm 2, we also see verbal reactions to Yahweh in the form of raging and muttering. But this time, what they're doing doesn't stem from or result in wisdom, but it's entirely in vain. This is classic ancient language for the actions of fools. Almost like the Tower of ba uh, Babel, these people coming together, you know, they're to make a great name for themselves, to be independent. The kings of the earth are taking a stand against Yahweh and his chosen king, and the word used is Mashiach, uh, aka anointed one. And the rulers are conspiring, another verbal action directly opposed to those who meditate uh, slash mutter the instructions of God all day. And uh, let's talk really quick here about parallelisms. There are a few different kinds, maybe even five different kinds, and it's commonly taught um, that they're all of the sentence A equals sentence B sort of thing, but that actually isn't true. You can also have a parallelism that's like Sentence A, and then what's more, sentence B, which adds to the concept of A. Um, boy, that did not sound very clear. In this case, the second sentence elaborates on the first, saying the same sort of thing, but being 
far more specific. The nations and the peoples aren't simply grumbling, but their leaders are also plotting and scheming and deciding to be opposed to Yahweh. So it's saying the same thing, but the second one gives more detail. So that's a parallelism. They talk to one another about rebellion, as, but as we will see, they are all talk and no action. It sounds as though the nations see themselves as somehow vassals of Yahweh. Um, underlings. Why else would they be wearing um, fetters or a yoke or being bound? Yahweh's response is very illuminating, and yes, it's supposed to be taken humorously. The, the Bible really is a funny book. It's also not funny in a lot of places. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. There are always people who take this sort of statement as proof that Yahweh is a mocker. And so they can be jerks if they disagree with something, but that isn't what is being expressed here. We're looking here at incredulity. Imagine a toothless, elderly, miniature Dawson with no claws bum-rushing you. I mean, it would be hilarious and we would all sit around laughing about it, right? We might even collectively pee our pants as he tries to gum you to death. But then what would happen when it stopped being funny? Bad dog, cut that out. And the dog would stop and then whimper and run off only to come back with its tail between its legs later. That's the picture of these nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. Compared to Yahweh, they are harmless rat dogs. To use my husband's favorite expression to describe little dogs. <laughs> and here is Yahweh's response. Dudes, you are irrelevant. I chose my own king, not any of you. And I have placed him in authority in the place I have chosen in all the earth, not your countries, to be my set-apart place. Yahweh's setting the record straight and getting in their faces with the facts. They aren't the kings of the mountain or the castle or whatever, and they aren't even in the running. Okay, and now the anointed speaks. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. The chosen king, the Mashiach, translated into English as Messiah, speaks and recounts Yahweh's decree. His binding statement slash promise slash oath to the chosen one. You are my son, today I become your father. This is ancient Near Eastern enthronement language. Most famously, Yahweh says this about Solomon in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, David's body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Figuratively, this is the language of gods to kings and queens, and it means you are my chosen representative to bear my image before all of the people. When they see you, it will be as though they are seeing me. It will be as if you are my own literal son. How they treat you is how they treat me. But because of that, you will be held doubly responsible for how you treat my people because everything you do will be in my name. Sons in the ancient world were heirs and ambassadors. If you were a vassal serving the king, you owed the same loyalty, obedience, and fealty to the son. They were in some ways considered to be one and the same, and so transgression that makes the deity look bad had to be handled severely. Now, all of this sounds like it could have been written by David about himself or about Solomon, right? But now Yahweh's making promises that the nations will be the inheritance, even to the ends of the earth, of the Mashiach, the Anointed One, and that he will crush them with an iron scepter and shatter them as though they are clay pots. Well, this certainly isn't referring to David or Solomon or any of his descendants. This is eschatological language, meaning dealing with the end times. In fact, when the Davidic monarchy failed and all hopes for becoming a world power were dashed, the sages began seeing this as an end times promise, not for a Mashiach like David, but the Mashiach, the Messiah. This verse is the only time that the word son appears as a title in the Psalms. And the wording for today I become your father isn't adoptive language like we see with Solomon, you know, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is birthing language or reproductive language. This is closer to the language used to speak of Adam and Eve than the language one would normally see describing ancient Near Eastern kings as the adopted offsprings of the gods. This is a more primal sort of kingship than David enjoyed, the sort of pure image-bearing kingship enjoyed by man and woman in the garden. And who is the them to be shattered and broken? Although there is the temptation to assume that this clearly represents violent warfare, that actually isn't necessary. As we see in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the Messiah is the one who violently shatters all the world powers slash kingdoms of the beast system. We see this in Daniel 7, Revelation 11, 12, and 19. Messiah frees people and destroys beast kingdoms. He doesn't allow them to um, be just collateral damage. Now, the speaker changes again to more of a narration. The rulers and the kings have spoken. Yahweh has spoken, the Anointed One has spoken, and now the narrator returns to Psalm 1-style wisdom literature. He's going to tell the kings of the earth how to live wisely so that they and their people will flourish and prosper and not be destroyed. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite in any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Last line at first. All who take refuge in him are happy. Let's review the first line of Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. You see why scholars believe these two were originally one unit and meant to be read together? You know, we have these beatitude bookends using the Hebrew word ashray. Between these are the instructions for a life that will prosper. You know, not necessarily financially, but in terms of cooperating with God, blessing his kingdom and creating an environment of shalom and or wholeness for all. When we behave with wisdom, we eliminate some of the chaos in the world and promote peace. Some of us eliminate more than others, just saying. We remove violence and create good fruit. We pursue justice and right wrongs. That is our goal as image bearers, to be wise and build his kingdom instead of our own. How are the kings advised to do this? As they are, you know, really being portrayed not only as fools, but as the wicked, the sinners, and the mockers of Psalm 1. The kings are commanded to be wise as opposed to the fools who oppose Yahweh and his anointed one. The judges and um, kings were the chief judges in the land in the uh, ancient Near East. They're commanded to receive instruction. And although we might be tempted to believe that the word translated as instruction is Torah, this instruction is actually a word meaning correction and or discipline. Yahweh isn't condemning them, but the narrator is calling them into covenant obedience, really into the covenant. They are being summoned to serve Yahweh and fear him as one does their king. These kings are being told that their deserved places under Yahweh's feet as conquered enemies, but that they have the opportunity to instead be servants. Isn't this the offer we were all made when we were... Uh, Supposed kings and queens of our own mini-universes. <laughs> Their mercies, uh, the mercies of the Lord are certainly new every morning. And as the sun is always rising somewhere, that means 24-7, 365. The kings are also commanded to rejoice with trembling. And this might seem odd, but isn't it exactly what happened at Mount Sinai? The people rejoiced to know what Yahweh wanted from them and agreed to it before they even knew all the details. But at the same time, they were terrified by the sound of his voice. So again, this is invitational covenant language and not entirely adversarial. Yahweh is used to dealing with fools, and especially since I was born. Now here's the weird part where Alter and the CSB are at odds. Alter says, with purity be armed, lest he rage and you be lost on the way. The CSB gives us the more familiar, pay homage to the sun, or some say kiss the sun, for he will be, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. Although these seem wildly different, there are good arguments in support of both interpretations, because that's what these are. There isn't really an adequate word-for-word -word way to translate this, and so scholars have to 
sort of guess the meaning of the original author. Remember that one of Alter's goals is to use as few words as possible in order to better reflect how the psalm sounds in Hebrew, which is a very compact language, while English takes three times as long to say the same thing sometimes. You know, what can I say? We're a mouthy bunch. The important question isn't which one is right, but instead, do either of these break with the overall meaning of scripture? And neither do. We can still find Messiah prophesied in Psalm 2 without the command to kiss or pay respect to the Son. It's a nice cherry on top, but not needful. If it's translated with purity be armed, is it really wrong? The Psalm isn't entirely historical because it applies to no purely human descendant of David and to no era of Israel's history either. So what if Alter is correct? And this psalm is telling them to arm themselves with purity, the ways of Yahweh and his correction and instruction, instead of arming themselves with words and weapons against Yahweh. To me, this is a clever solution to a phrase that doesn't really make any sense at all in the original Hebrew. It comes across as one last plea to those toothless, violent chihuahuas to go lay down and be good puppies. Next week, Psalm 3, our first lament psalm. I love the laments, as you will come to learn, and I hope you will come to love them as well. See you next week.